Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Weising, and today uh, I'm joined by uh, a really great guest who is uh, an internationally known uh, French DJ, producer and electronic artist, Mayo Pinot. Uh, he's better known around the world as Maelstrom. And uh, hey, thank you very much for being here. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Super happy to be here. Yeah. So we had uh, a great story on our website at decentral.io by Keegan Boyce um, about how musicians are using NFTs and Web3 to kind of take back some of the creativity and um, sort of self-fund themselves. And I know that uh, you spoke to Keegan for that story and, and were quoted in it. And I really appreciate you coming back uh, or coming on the podcast to just kind of flesh it out a little bit more um, and how NFTs and Web3 are um, the new options and, and uh, benefits that they're affording to musicians such as yourself. So um, as I mentioned, you are French. Um, what part of France did you grow up in? Uh, I was born and I still live in a city uh, called Nantes, which is on the ocean side on the west. So yeah, that, that's where I grew up. And uh, after a bit of traveling, I'm, I'm back there. Yeah. Happily. And um, when did you first get into music as a kid? What was it? What, what got you into it? Um, actually, I wasn't, uh, as a kid, really, I wasn't that much into music. My parents weren't really like big music fans. There were no instruments at home or things like that. What happened was that when I was uh, 15, uh, a friend of mine took me to an illegal rave party. And we kind of sneaked out because we were supposed to stay at his sister's place for on a Saturday night. And we sneaked out of the house and, and yeah. went to... It's like crazy rave party in a warehouse. And, uh, and that's kind of how it all uh, started for me because the impression this event made on me was like really strong. And um, so what, what like the, the environment at the time was that the city, so not the city where I was uh, growing up in was uh, used to be an industrial place. It used to be full of factories, you know, uh, it's a harbor. So we had like ships coming in with like fruits and cocoa and all that kind of stuff. And then like all the, there was a shipyard, lots of factories around the river. And in like, like anywhere else in Europe, um, in the late seventies, early mid to mid eighties, all these factories started closing up yeah. and, uh, and the production got shipped to Asia. And so as a teenager, the place where I grew up in was kind of the, the whole city center, which used to be like a, this, this incredibly busy place with like workers and, and you know, uh, 
and factories and like lots of lots of movement, lots of things happening. Everything was in decay, more or less. So we had lots of warehouses that were abandoned, and uh, and and when the rave party thing started to happen, and when the first uh, traveling sound systems started coming from the UK, it was kind of a natural transition for these places to be reused by these uh, tr illegal traveling sound systems to do parties. So. Yeah. Very fast, like around 90, like from 94 to 98, there was like rave parties every weekend and, and we got just sucked into it. And that's yeah. how I started buying. Sounds like Berlin a little bit. Um, if, but what was, um, what was it about the electronic music and like the rave scene that really kind of like grabbed your attention? I think at first, I mean, I remember this, I really remember vividly this first experience. Uh, there were like two things. The, the first one was the, the physical experience of sound. It was something I had never experienced before. And the feeling of experiencing sound as something that goes through your body. You know, you don't just listen with your ears or your eardrums, but you're listening with your bones and with your belly and your and your lungs, you know, and and you're having this experience of sound as something that you're inside of, instead of just, you know, what I what I was used to as a teenager, like we had this, you know, uh, like just these little headphones and you were listening to your headphones on the bus or things like that, which was great, but like suddenly there was this massive stacks of speakers and you were absolutely drowning in the sound. And, and yeah, so that's like something that really uh really changed me in 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 a sense where i understood like i really understood how music was much more than uh something that you could hear but it was also something that you could live you know like like uh you know the dancing the movements in this kind of sea of waves was like really incredible so that's one side of it and the other side of it as a somehow rebellious teenager. Uh, the, the politics of the scene at the time were really appealing to a uh, you know, 16, 17 year old who just wanted to be different or like be yeah. some kind of an yeah, outcast, yeah. you know, like how you can be at that age. Very much so, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And yeah, I'm that... not trying to sound like an old man here, but yeah. <laughs> that, um, yeah, that first experience of, of, of music as a physical thing can be really powerful. Um, and then how long was it before you decided to try, try it yourself or just, you know, start diving into it as, as not just a listener, but somebody who was making the music? Well, that's like, that, that's another part of the, at least the European free party scene is that more or less it was, it was really open to all to participate in. So very fast, like uh, I bought a pair of turntables with some friends. Well, like we, you know, went record digging in the shops every week and uh, and we accumulated enough records to like kind of be able to play for a couple hours. And at the time you could just show up with your record bag and, you know, wait until everybody was kind of uh, off their heads on drugs or whatever, you know, and in the morning on the Sunday, there was always a moment where you could, you know, be given the chance to play. Mm -hmm. uh, even if it's like 10 people left dancing, you know, you, you had a chance to experiment it 
in, in like real life conditions, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. So around like 16, 17, you, you know, we just, uh, we, we just started going to these raves and uh, bringing the records with us, trying to play as, as much and as often as we could. And, uh, and quite fast, we started also buying drum machines and samplers, synthesizers from like pawn shops. Uh, and we started making really bad techno uh, <laughs> around the same time. Um, once you stopped making the bad techno and you were making good techno, um, did you tell me about like the economics of it? Were you able to support yourself or, or how, how was the um, like, what was it like as an artist like back then in, in that world? Um, so for me, it's like uh, different periods, like when uh, I'd say like between my, you know, 19 years old and 25, I was really deep into this illegal rave scene. So I was living in a truck, we were traveling around Europe. Uh, we didn't really need that much money. And so we were organizing party where we were asking for donations at the door. Uh, we were making records and, and selling them. And it'd be like, what, I don't know, a thousand records maybe, you know, at a time. So it was kind of a, alternative kind of lifestyle, I'd say. And then it lasted uh, until I was around, yeah, 24, 25. And, uh, and then I started to settle down and, and I was really exhausted of this kind of uh, scene and, and lifestyle. I mean, it was a bit too much. Um, and so I, I started making music and playing. I, I was still doing it, but then like I got into, uh, uh, I started a, a new project with friends, which was kind of a, um, we tried to mix uh, circus arts with the rave, uh, the rave music and the rave atmosphere and the rave scenes to do something uh, between uh, a techno gig and a circus performance. Let's uh -huh. frame it like this. So, and the, the great thing about France is that we have a really strong public support system for the arts, even as crazy and experimental as the things we were trying to do at the time. So we applied for funding and we got some. So like during four to five years, we really were making like half the money from the shows and half the money from, you know, different uh, subsidies, grants, like from the government, from the state, from the city hall, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, I'd say around 2010, maybe, I started signing records on bigger labels internationally and I started touring internationally as well. So that's when things started to be uh, better in terms of, uh, in terms of income and, and you know, being able to make a living out of my music. But it, it was from the shows mainly because uh, selling records I mean, when we started, like the first, like until I'd say 2005, uh, it was quite easy to, you know, sell a thousand records wasn't that complicated. Mm -hmm. We didn't need much, like you just, you know, produce the records, find a distributor, you just like bring the records to the stores yourself. And the vinyls would just find their audience on the shelves because people would just go to record store, pick up a couple of headphones and just listen to the new new records from the week and then just buy them this way. So, you know, you could make a thousand records and make like, I don't know, 
I don't know about the economics of it because it's such a long time ago, but yeah, make some money at least just to cover your expenses and maybe yeah. invest in the next one. Like and what I guess I'm getting party. at is, is um, did you see a shift at some point in this, in this time period of your life where streaming started to kind of come into more, more fashion and like some of that economics uh, fr from what you were doing as an artist kind of went away? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, even earlier than streaming, I'd say when DJs started playing uh, with CDJs and, and Serato and these kind of technologies, which are absolutely amazing. Uh, I have nothing against, obviously, but when that started to happen, the vinyl sales started to plummet. And, uh, and I really remember like, because we had, we were working with the biggest distributor in France for the type of music we were doing. And in a matter of months, I think it's like in 10 to 12 months, it was huge. I mean, this distribution company was just, uh, it was all the biggest labels in France and they went bankrupt in a year. Wow. Just, you know, because of this uh, switch to new technologies. So going bankrupt, of course, uh, we had like, you know, two or three EPs, I can't remember precisely, that we didn't get paid for. So all the labels took a hard hit. I mean, yeah, it was, it was difficult times because uh, everything we invested in kind of went away and we kind of had to adjust to this new ecosystem where the economics were really much more difficult because even if it was not streaming era, you know, it was the kind of beatboard iTunes where people were really paying for downloading MP3s. The tracks were on Pirate website instantly, like on the day, on the release day. So there was no way you could make. So there's no way you could any, sell them. It was kind of a Napster no, I mean, situation. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, you know, that's when like, you know, you started to realize uh, that making music was merely some kind of promotion for the tours really. And, and there was no way we were gonna be able to make any money because before that, I remember we, you know, we built a whole studio out of just uh, selling the vinyls and it was like the way for us to buy the equipment and things like that. So yeah, yeah. at the time we realized that was over. Yeah, and I, I think I, if, if people know about streaming and what the economics are and what they've done to artists, I, I don't know if they know a lot about it. So I was hoping we could kind of set the stage here and start with um, basically the streaming services. Uh, and this is what Keegan wrote about so well, were a response to the piracy kind of of like a Napster kind of situation where, you know, all it is is an MP3 and you upload it, you know, you upload a Metallica album and then anyone around the world can download it for free. And, and so obviously the record companies did not like that at all. Um, and, and I guess what the response was, was the, these streaming services where, you know, pay us a monthly fee and you can have all this music you want. Um, but maybe you could tell uh, us a little bit about like what the actual economics are and, and how difficult it is for someone who's not, you know, a world fan, like really well-known with millions of fans to, to kind of make a, a living from that model. It's fucked, man. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's absolutely impossible. Like for, and that's what's so, you know, this disheartening, I'd say about it is that I think in order to make a living from the streaming alone, 
you need to have like millions of plays every day. Like that's that's something you need to be on some kind of level where your music is going to be played everywhere. And what I'm, you know, what what's sad and, and kind of yeah disheartening about it is that it pushes people to play for the lowest common denominator because in order to make any money in this kind of ecosystem, you need your music to be playable in lots of different environments. So like, you know, typically, uh, I don't know, like airports, uh, you know, sports rooms, supermarkets, whatever, because you need the music to be easy enough and pleasing enough somehow to be played in all these environments. And you need this music to have the kind of inner qualities that people are gonna want to play the tracks again and again and again and again. And for someone who's doing music that's a little bit more challenging maybe, or that just doesn't, um, how to say? Fit uh, the mold. That, yeah, it doesn't fit this kind of mold. Um, it, it's almost impossible. And, and the, you know, the terrible thing about it is that uh, for me as a, as a listener, as a music lover, some of the most important albums for me, for some of the most like important music in my life, I probably won't listen to these albums more than once or twice a year because it's um, the, these tracks, you know, this music are challenging and require my absolutely full attention, you know, but it doesn't mean that my emotional connection and uh, to this music and that the memories I have from listening to these albums and what these albums and this music is giving me has less value than something that I can play while doing the dishes or like while, you know, uh, walking around in the streets or, you know, doing my running or whatever. Like, I'm not saying either is better. I'm just saying that uh, music that I'm gonna play, you know, once a month or twice a year has as much or even more value to me than music I'm gonna listen casually, you know, in my daily life. So that's kind of the, you know, the problem that I see about the economics of streaming is that one side of production is rewarded because it has uh, certain qualities, which are not deniable. Like it's really difficult to do a great pop song that people are gonna to want to listen to over and over again. But other types of musical expression uh, won't get rewarded at all because uh, they won't get as many plays. So, yeah. Yeah, and it, it sounds like exactly what the record companies would want to do um, in terms of you know, not paying artists for, for what they're doing. And then it also leads to a sort of race to the bottom uh, in terms of pricing because they wanna always have more and more listeners but they have to keep the prices low. So it just kind of it becomes a self-enforcing trend. Um, so where in this point did you discover crypto? And like, when did you start realizing that, oh, maybe there's a, another option here um, that, that is now being afforded by, by some of this new stuff that's out in like Web3? So I guess same as, uh, you know, lots of other musicians experimenting with Web3 at the moment. What happened was that uh, before the pandemic, 95% uh, of my income was coming from the DJ sets and the live shows. And then, you know, with the lockdowns and stuff, 
I got stuck at home with nothing to do and, and yeah. not much of an income anymore, even though in France, again, like we're really super lucky because we have really good support systems uh, for the arts. So it wasn't as hard as like people in the UK or in the US for sure. So, but still I had a lot of time and I, I was following at the time on Twitter, uh, Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon, who are like experimental musicians. They're working a lot with AI um, and Matt especially, but Holly as well, uh, were um, very interested in, uh, in Web3 and NFTs. And they had started this podcast called uh, Interdependence. So I, I was really, it seemed really interesting, but then back, you know, so that was like, I don't know, uh, winter of 2020, I think, something like that. And, uh, and so when I, you know, I was following them, trying to read about it, but then like all the lingo and the words and like, it seemed really obscure. And, and sometimes, you know, because I've been in this uh, Web3 environment for quite some time now, because things are moving fast, you forget how difficult it is from the outside. But at the beginning, I was like, wow, like that seems something that I want to know more about, but I don't really understand anything they're saying. You yeah. know, <laughs> like yeah. talking about minting and like wallets and shit. I was like, what? Like, yeah. okay. So <laughs> what happened is that uh, uh, a guy named Michael Stongo, Stong, I don't know how to pronounce, uh, is, uh, he used to work for Boiler Room. And uh, so I met him in, the, you know, in a Boiler Room and then he invited me to play his residency in uh or his festival in Bergheim in, in Berlin. And again, on Twitter, I realized he was now working for Zora, which is like a Web3 protocol and a marketplace as well. And so I texted him and I was like, man, like that sounds really interesting, but I don't understand anything about, about this. So could you just give me a one-on-one about you know, NFTs and, and crypto and how blockchain and how that works? So he was kind enough to take an hour of his time to just, uh, you know, run me through the basics. Um, so that was early 2021, I guess. And then, well, let's um, back, let's pause here and like, how do yeah. you, ha having gone through all of that to understand it, what's the easiest and most like simple way that you explain what an NFT is in, in the music realm to to somebody who doesn't know what it is? uh well the way i do it now because I, I have a lot of these questions like we all do i guess um is to use the analogy of a photograph mm -hmm. like for instance if you have like a, a big photographer doing an exhibition in you know the take gallery so he's going to do some prints of his pictures and he's going to sign them and then these prints are going to be on sale some of them and they're going to be on sale for, you know, a large amount of money. It's going to be like, I don't know, 50,000, 100,000, whatever. Um, but then these same images are going to be all postcards in the museum shop, right? Mm -hmm. And they're going to be on sale for 15 euros. Or you're going to have posters for like, you know, 45 or whatever. And But these same images are going to be available on his website, on in, like Instagram, Facebook, you know, on the internet for free. So you could basically, you know, right click and download and have these images on your hard drive. So that's kind of the image I'm using. The NFTs are like the numbered prints, but you can still have the same 
tracks if we're talking about music NFTs on a streaming platform like Spotify or Deezer and pay you know, $10 a month and you'll be able to listen to it forever. Or even it's on SoundCloud and you can listen you know, to the music for free. So that's kind of, I think that's the way for me to explain it. You know, of course, you can dig into what an NFT technically is, which is actually not the music or not the art, but like more like a certificate of authenticity. Yeah. But I think this like, you know, photographic kind of image, at least in my experience, it works well with people who don't have uh, prior knowledge of what we're doing. Yeah, and it's also um, like, it's, I think it's interesting that it's kind of come full circle in a way because we were talking about Napster and Metallica and you be, somebody being able to upload something and that MP3 is fungible, right? It's just, there's, there's millions of them out there and they can all be downloaded. But with blockchain technology, now you can have a digital file, an MP4 or something like that, or an MP3 that is authenticated and, and um, you know, attached to a blockchain where you can see the ownership record and, and everything is, is now, it, it becomes valuable, it becomes scarce. And so um, that scarcity, you know, can then lead it to having an increased value um, so along those lines, like tell us about what you did with Zora, first of all, and like how the, that first kind of experience with, with selling some of your music as NFTs uh, went for you. So what, what happened is that I had this conversation with Mikhail and um, so I was really interested into like, how can I use these, uh, these technologies uh, to kind of experiment with my own music? And at the time, there was no platform for music NFTs at all. Seems crazy, but that was like, you know, a year ago and none uh, existed. But uh, the guys from catalog.works were about to launch uh, catalog. So Mikhail introduced me to Jeremy and the team at catalog. And I was uh, part of the first wave of artists to, to mint music NFTs on, on catalog. So, after this talk with Mikhail, uh, Jeremy and the catalog team, they really like onboarded me, explained to me how to set up a wallet, like they uh, fronted the mint, uh, the gas fees for me. And I did my first couple of uh, music NFTs with them, which uh, sold incredibly, like surprisingly, because at first I was really skeptical about, yeah. you know, anyone wanting to spend that much money on my like crazy, edgy uh, <laughs> underground stuff, <laughs> let's say. It. Uh, so, so yeah, that's how it started. And so I did a couple of uh, NFTs on catalog and then I got introduced to another platform, uh, Async. Mm -hmm. And I did another piece uh, on Async, which is uh, a little bit more complicated in a way, but more interesting also for me because Async is a programmable is using the blockchains in a programmable way. So what we did was um, uh, a this is your project you with have... uh, Hussam Asa. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I wanted to talk a, to you about this. This is really fascinating. Who's like an Egyptian artist, and so basically on Async we we have uh, one music song, and we divide it into different layers. So you have, let's say, a drum layers, a bass layer, a vocal layer, et cetera, et cetera. And for each one of these layers, you can create variants. So you'll have three, four, five, 10 kick drums, 10 snares, 10 basses, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, we, so on I think you can sell 
each layer to a different collector. Mm -hmm. And it's the collector who's going to be able to choose which one of the variants from said layers are playing at, uh, at the time. So basically what's kind of really interest, interesting to me is that when you work on a piece like that, there's no final state of your song. Like it's kind of, you know, always up in the air somehow. Like it's never going to be finished or it's going to be finished in like tens of thousands of different ways. Yeah. So it's a whole different approach to working on a piece of music where you're going to, you know, mix it down and do a master and then release it. And it's the final form of a song here. You're like, you have to kind of trust the system you designed to generate, uh, you know, editions or like versions of the yeah. song yeah. that are all going to be interesting. But at the same time, you can't really check them all out, you know, beforehand because there's too many of them. Yeah. So, so it's all about, you know, designing a system that you like and kind of collaborating with that system and with the collectors, because the, eventually the collectors are going to be the ones choosing the, as, the final aspects of, of the music. So that's yeah. my second experience in yeah, yeah. making music on, or using the blockchain. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's like what um, the artist RAC did with a project he had called Circular. Uh, it's very similar mm -hmm. kind of. Yeah. But, yeah. And then it's fascinating to me because now your listeners, the collectors are, you're interacting in, in, with them in a way that you never could have done before. And I, I find that Absolutely. really fascinating. But um, help me understand, you're not selling the IP, right? Like the intellectual property, the, the music is still yours, correct? It's just that they have a sanctioned kind of piece of it? Or how, how do you explain that to, to people? No, the rights, like, and, and that's something, I, I mean, I understand it's a good question because that's something people usually have a hard time understanding. And that's fine because it's not really clear and it's complicated, but no, like I own 100% of my music. I own the masters, I own the publishing. So I'm the one making decisions about that music gives us like a sync, you know, for like a, a movie or a commercial. They're gonna ask me, not the collectors. Yeah. So what, and that's the thing is like, that's the thing about NFTs, especially, and I think it's even kind of clearer with music NFTs is that a piece of music is too large to be on the blockchain. You can't store an MP3 on the blockchain it's not on chain, the music is not. So like the music itself, you know, it's stored in a decentralized way, like on the IPFS, for instance, which is a system to store files that's kind of similar to torrents, right. um, but it's not on chain. What's on chain is the NFT and what the NFT is, is a smart contract. And it's like kind of a certificate of authenticity. Yeah, that's yeah, the, someone... the ownership chain, right? It's, exactly. it's a transactional it's, record of like, this was minted here, it was bought yeah. here, bought here. Exactly. And, so it's more like a signature mm -hmm. on something that's replicable, but one edition is going to be signed. And there's going to be just a certain number, limited number of editions, or even one edition in, in, in the case of a, like one-to-one, -one, that is going to be signed and authentic, how do you say in English, authenticated? Yeah. 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 And I, I think... What's so awesome about that is for artists is that 
you're monetizing your work, but you're not giving anything away. You're still, you have all that ownership, but it's a, it's a way. I mean, you can, you can do that. Like some, you, you was, you were talking about RIC. I think it did it. Um, and like, you know, blah, people are actually monetizing the IP and monetizing mm -hmm. the rights on their music. And that's an option, but you right. don't have to do it. Right. Right. And you can still earn a lot of money without, you know, while still retaining the rights to, to what you're doing. Um, yeah. So in like general terms, can you like compare what you're doing, like the income and the economics now to what like the streaming offered? Uh, I mean, it seems like this is now, you don't have to tell us exactly what you're making, but it seems like you're now like, this is a, a very, um, a much more lucrative way for you to kind of sustain yourself and your, in your creativity. Well, to be honest, I never made any real money from streaming. Like, I, I don't think my music is very streamable. I mean, yeah. you know, the, this music, the music I'm doing is either music designed for the clubs and it's, you know, specifically made and tailored to be played on big sound systems uh, in basements and warehouses and this kind of environment. So, I mean, some people do listen to, you know, banging techno and electro at home, but it's not... <laughs> the vast majority of people, yeah. like most people are sane. Um, so I, I was not making like any money. I mean, it was like a couple hundreds, like maybe a thousand euros a year from streaming. So it was like, you know, uh, I wasn't even counting on it. Like all the money I was doing with streaming was just reinvested in the label straight away. So I wasn't counting on it. I'd say, um, in terms of economics right now, uh, what, I'm, what I'm generating from uh, NFTs is kind of the equivalent of what uh, I, I have been doing with uh, things and commercials in the past. Like more or less, you know, that's the, the same type of, uh, of value, I'd say. Yeah. So it's more like in the tens of thousands than in the hundreds, just to make it more readable what are um what, what are some of the things you think that still need to happen here or or tools that need to be developed or um what what kind of outreach needs to happen uh i know i think you, you spoke to keegan about there being a lot more artists right now that are doing this than like collectors or listeners like what, what do you think is necessary to kind of balance that out um, I mean, first I'd say when, when, you know, when you take a time, you take a step back and you look at what's happening, I think it's moving really fast, you yeah. know, like we all kind of used of seeing things, um, like we, we kind of used to see mass adoption happening very quickly, you know, but even though I think it, it's not happening as fast as some, you know, web two platforms or, you know, Instagram just, you know, going like from being like this fun app to being in everyone's pocket all, all around the world in matter of months. Of course, it's not happening as fast as that, but still I think things are moving really fast right now. Uh, and there's more and more and more people experimenting, trying to understand and uh, getting familiar with the tools. Yeah. So, you know, already I think it's, it's also, I mean, I'm saying this because I think it's also a matter of time, like just leaving time to, for platforms to scale up at their own 
pace and, and leaving time for people to understand uh, what's interesting in this for them, you know, and, and that's also because um, all of these, uh, all of these platforms, all of these means of expressions are decentralized. So it's much more like fractioned and atomized and it's of course more complicated to understand and to, you know, get a grip of what's web three, you know, it's kind of complicated, so many different things. Yeah. So you kind of have to understand what's in it for you and how you can use the tools uh, for yourself. Doesn't matter if you're a collector, if you're like an artist or, you know, if you're a developer, you know, it's just about, there's no, uh, one solution for all. So I think that's also one of the reasons why it doesn't go as fast as like something like Facebook or Spotify or you know SoundCloud or whatever. It's because it's much more tailored to your needs. Or you can even, you know, tailor it yourself to your own needs or expectations. Yeah. So I think there's that, you know, that that's why yes, of course, some efforts need to be made probably in terms of uh, Maybe in the language that's used, I think the language is too techy. Like maybe we could find words that are a little bit less frightening. Uh, a non-fungible token doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? No, no. <laughs> I kind of hate it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, just making it, you know, of course, like the you know UI UX is important as well, and right. uh, making it as easy as possible to user uh, interface. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's paramount. But like, I don't know, man. Like when you, I did a drop on Sound XYZ a couple of weeks ago, and uh, to be honest, when you you know if you have a wallet, like you have a MetaMask, or like whatever you know, and yep. you go on Sound, you just confirm you know you log in with your metamask or with your wallet and then everything is quite easy i mean it's like fairly to, to me it's fairly simple to understand how it works and to and is that know, where people are paying you kind of what they want for to listen to your music or what is uh what is sound xyz doing these days no it's more it's a music nft platform okay. uh and they're doing editions so it means you're selling 20, 50, 100, 1,000 edition of the same piece of music. I see, okay. As opposed to catalog where it's only one-to-one. -one. So you're mm -hmm. selling one edition to one collector. Mm -hmm. On sound, you're gonna sell, uh, in my case, 150 editions of the same mix to 150 collectors. Okay. Um, I think you have a couple of teenage children, is that correct? I do. Are they are they doing this stuff? Are they into it, or or is it like what, what, are, the, what are the kids doing these days? <laughs> so yeah, my my eldest is uh, nineteen. She's in art school, and of course she's really interested. So we talk about it a lot. But uh, I mean, she's young. She's still experimenting. It's her first year of art school, so she's saying she doesn't want to jump in too fast because she doesn't feel like what she's doing is. Uh, ready, you know, to mm -hmm. be exposed to the world, and she, she's not ready to to show it to everyone. So, yeah. and I think that's pretty mature. I mean, like, you know, I'm quite proud yeah. <laughs> to yeah. to hear that. And the younger one is 14, and we've been working on some stuff together. So we're actually gonna have uh, an NFT that we did together. We did the music together, and she uh, did the artwork. 
cool. And it's going to be part of a, a drop with uh, Holy Plus, which is Holy Hand and uh, DAO. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it seems, I don't know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I would love to hear your thoughts on um, by sort of getting the middlemen out of the way, the record companies or, or you know, streamers or whatever, it seems like musicians and their fans have been able to reconnect in, in ways that, that were almost, they were almost prevented by doing it in the past or they weren't incentivized to do it because like you might like go out and, you know, I don't know, sign a million autographs or go out and talk to your fans. But if that led to increased album sales, a lot of that was going to the record company, right? It wasn't just going to you. Now the incentive for like you to get out there and like be one-on-one -on -one with your fans, uh, or sell NFTs, it like, it kind of comes right back to you directly. And I just, and then just like on a, on a better, like just more soulful kind of thing. Like it seems kind of great that fans and artists can sort of um, connect in these new ways uh, that, that weren't possible before. I don't know. Like I, I mean, to be completely honest, I don't, I don't really agree with the statement that it wasn't possible before, because I think people were already doing that with, uh, you know, Twitch or like um, these kind of platforms where you can have mm -hmm. like subscribers and you have like a hundred subscribers and they're paying a monthly fee and they have access to, you know, like exclusive stuff, you know, exclusive tracks, different versions. So I'd say like the, the Web3 ecosystem is part of that movement where musicians like artists and musicians are trying to um to gain more agency uh mm -hmm. on what they're doing and and that's i think that's what's really uh interesting to me is that as an independent artist and i also have my own label so i have full control of over what i'm doing i can really use these tools to reach you know collectors of fans or you know, whatever you want to call them um, and it makes it kind of easy for me to do so, you know? Yeah. It's not like, there's not, I, I don't have to talk to a distributor. I don't have even to talk to a PR. I don't have to, you know, go through all these loops to kind of compete and, and have my music placed on a playlist and all that stuff. So for now, I think it's a, like, on, at least to me in the position I'm in right now, it's it's really interesting and it seems to be working, but I'm not 100% sure it's gonna keep working this way, you know? Cause like, as I was saying, I was one of the first artists on catalog uh, selling one one music NFTs. I was one of the first artists on async. Uh, I'm not bragging, I'm just saying, you know, it's not about like, I like being the first, it's just, it happened to be to, you know, it happened this way, but, as more and more musicians and more and more artists are joining in, probably we're gonna see the same kind of, you know, you kind of have to compete to exist mm -hmm. and, and there's gonna to have to be some kind of gatekeeper somehow. So like, I'm saying this because I don't wanna sound like some kind of, you know, web three evangelist, like the technology is great. I'm really interested, I'm participating, I'm experimenting and, uh, because it's new, like I want to be hands-on, you know, I want to try it out because if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it for me. And 
and probably I'm not going to like it. So, <laughs> you know, that's why I'm doing it. But at the same time, uh, since we're really early in, we're still in the very early days of, uh, of you know, Web3 music or music NFTs or whatever you want to call that, it's still very difficult to see where that's going to go. And mm -hmm. I don't want to sound like, because, you know, like, I mean, I'm not making millions or anything, but I'm in a position where uh, I can sell 150 editions of my NFTs on sound. And that's like, you know, quite a success on my, uh, for an artist like myself, let's say it like this. But I don't want to sound like it's going to be possible for every single musician to do the same thing in one year or in two years. I'm not sure and I don't know. Like I wish it will happen, but I don't know if the market's gonna grow as fast as uh, the offer is gonna be. I don't know if it's very clear. Yeah, yeah, I hear that for sure. And it reminds me of what you're saying with like Zora, that it wasn't even around a year ago. And, you know, here we are talking about it. And it, if, if there's one thing in crypto that I've learned, it's just, it's always gonna surprise you. Um, and there's, so many people working on things all around the world um, that you know, great ideas tend to tend to come out, but it does take. I think it's going to take a long time for everybody to kind of be really comfortable with it and and to just see how it all shakes out. But um, Malstrom, thank you very much for being here. It's just been great to kind of like for you to educate us and to just hear your story. And uh, good luck with everything going on. And and I really hope that it all keeps working out for you. Thank you so much. I hope my French accent wasn't too too harsh. And no, I no, was understandable. It's been lovely to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Okay, we'll talk again soon. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.